uh, service, we'll be talking about true faith. And so with that in mind, let's turn together to Acts chapter 16. Uh, We'll read verses 11 to 34. Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Tyre, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful of for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering, that the jailer, uh, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. As the reading of our text for now, let's sing together in response about our desire to depend upon the Lord with childlike trust, 
uh, with the words of Psalm 131. We'll sing all three stanzas. second service, we work our way through the Heidelberg Catechism, which summarizes the teaching of Scripture. So today we come to Lord's Day 7. So I'll read our confession of our faith based on God's word from there. Are all men then saved by Christ, just as they perished through Adam? No. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge, whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. What are these articles? And what follows is the Apostles' Creed, which uh, we'll recite together later. This is our confession based on God's uh, perfect word. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, I don't know about you, but personally, I really love listening to conversion stories. It's really wonderful, and it's powerful to listen to people 
uh, explain how exactly they came to faith. Or, uh, rather, if you want to be more precise, the people explain how God powerfully intervened and worked in their lives to bring them to true faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, A few weeks ago, I heard of uh, one man who had spent his whole life living far from God. Uh, He had spent uh, his whole life looking for joy and satisfaction and love everywhere he could think of apart from God. And one day he ended up in the hospital from complications of his drug use. And while he was there, someone came up to him and they started speaking with him. And he could tell, he was amazed, this person cared deeply about him. Like no one else had cared about him in a long time. Eventually, after they talked for a little while, they asked him, Do you know Jesus? And he said, Oh yeah, I know Jesus. And he ended the conversation. He didn't want to talk any further. But he explained that question stuck with him. It started echoing in his head. That night, he couldn't sleep. He felt like Jesus himself was standing there beside his bed, saying to him, Do you know me? Do you know me? Eventually, he couldn't stand it anymore. And he turned on a Christian TV station, and he began reading the Bible. And by God's grace, in the following weeks and months, he came to a true faith in Jesus Christ. He came to believe that Jesus really came to earth, and he was exactly who he said he was. That he was the Son of God, who came to suffer and die for sinful people, who came to suffer and die for him, to save him from his sin and guilt and shame and bring him back to God. And he really believed that Christ loved him and laid down his life for him, and I come and found him. And likewise, in our text today, we have read a couple of conversion stories. We read about uh, two people who came to true faith in Jesus Christ, two people from radically different backgrounds, who were brought back to God simply by believing the good news of his son. And so today we'll explore a little bit more true faith, and we'll do it in three parts. First, we'll see the, tr- the necessity of true faith. Secondly, the nature of true faith. And then thirdly, the object of true faith. So first, the necessity of true faith. And maybe someone has once asked you the question, what do you want first, the good news or the bad news? And the catechism, it doesn't ask us that question. It just kind of jumps in. But maybe you've noticed over the last number of weeks, it starts off with the bad news. Bad news that we were created for greatness and for God's glory. But through our first parents, Adam and Eve, we've thrown away the greatness and glory we were created for. The world is broken and we're broken and we're liable to judgment. The catechism is made very clear. The connection between heaven and earth has been severed. But the bad news is just to set up the great and glorious news that the person in our introduction, that that man came to know and love. The great and glorious news that we heard last week as well. The Lord sent a Savior, his own dear Son, and he himself became the bridge between us and God. He is our mediator. Jesus Christ, it's amazing to even think what it would look like because it's so different than we are. But Jesus Christ kept God's law perfectly. And everything Jesus said and everything he did, he loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. What would that even look like? More than that, Jesus Christ loved us with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and all of his strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. That is the good news the catechisms outlined uh, for us, especially in Lord's Day 6. But now the question is, how does Christ's 
awesome salvation and work? How does his perfect love, how does that salvation become my salvation? What does that have to do with me? How does Christ's payment become my payment? And how does his righteousness become my righteousness? And that's the question that Lord's Day 7 deals with. That's the question that our text deals with as well. We need to picture the story, what's going on with Paul and Silas. So Paul and Silas have been going out and they've been boldly preaching the gospel from city to city. And in this town in particular, they had preached the gospel and they had healed a little girl from demon possession. And as a result, as thanks, they were beaten violently by an angry mob. That's what we read. They were dragged before the rulers of the town. The people tore the garments off them, had them beaten with rods, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, the town's rulers had them thrown in prison. And Tim Keller, commenting on this passage, he mentions that it seems the jailer keeps up the cruelty of the townspeople and the rulers. The, the jailer, if you look at the text, he, he doesn't allow them to wash up their wounds. He throws them into the deepest part, the inner part of the prison, where it's darkest and most uncomfortable. He had their legs put in stocks, stocks, wooden stocks. I'm sure you can picture them. Uh, they were made for imprisonment, but also for punishment, for, for torture. They're extremely painful, and they made it impossible for them to get comfortable, especially after being beaten by so many blows. And Paul and Silas in prison, unable to sleep, unable to get comfortable, they could have wept. They could have lamented. But instead we read, they sang and they prayed. Most commentators believe these were prayers and hymns of joy and praise and thanksgiving to God for their salvation. Eventually, there was an earthquake and the doors flung open and everyone's bonds, their chains were loosed. And when the jailer saw this, he was going to take his own life. He knew the punishment for letting prisoners escape under your watch was uh, execution, if not worse. And yet, then the jailer, he experiences incredible grace, like he had never seen before in his life. Paul and Silas, these prisoners who had been mistreated and beaten by others, and seemingly mistreated by him, they were still there, and they kept the others there as well. And so the jailer runs up, and we read he was trembling. He fell on his knees. These men, he knew, had saved his life, and he didn't deserve it. They had been treated awfully, and yet how did they repay him? They treated him wonderfully with undeserved compassion. He never would have done that. And so he falls on his knees, and he asks them, what must I do to be saved? How can this remarkable salvation that you have, that you sing out in praise in the middle of the night in the inner part of a prison after being beaten, how can that salvation that you have where you extend grace like this to me, your jailer, who had left you in such uncomfortable situations, how can this salvation that you have, how can that become my salvation as well? The prison guard is asking. And they tell him. They say in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You too can have this salvation. And that's the answer of God's word. How can God, Jesus' salvation, how can his great victory over Satan and sin in the grave become this man's salvation and your salvation and mine? As Lord's Day 7 summarizes, it's only by true faith. It's by true faith, the catechism says, that we're grafted into Christ and receive all his benefits. 
One time I taught about this in a catechism class, and I was getting so excited about being grafted into Christ. And I talked for a while, and then one of the students raised their hand, and they said, um, Mr. Tim, what is grafting? Well, grafting is incredibly important, because once you realize what it is, then hopefully you will get excited about it too. Grafting, if you're not familiar, it's when a branch is cut off of a one tree or one vine. Then you go to another healthy tree or vine, you cut a slit into it, you put the branch into it, and you bind it in place. And before long, the two grow into each other. They become one. They become inseparable from one another. And so I hope you're getting excited about this. By true faith, we are grafted into Jesus Christ. We become one with him, in a sense, before God. His salvation, his righteousness becomes ours. We're inseparable from him. His payment for sin, it's your payment for sin, simply by faith. What a remarkable truth the Bible teaches us, that we are united to Christ like that. What a relationship we have with him. Just be amazed for a second that that's how the Bible describes sinful, weak people like you and me. Our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, come down in the flesh. As the catechism summarizes for us, in him, united with him, we have forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace. I was struck this past week thinking about how fitting it is, how that God has chosen to unite us to Christ, like branches of a vine or like parts of a body. God does it by faith. Isn't that extremely fitting? Think back to the beginning of the Bible. Think about what wrenched us apart from our God and Creator at the beginning. What pulled us apart from our God? It was when the devil started speaking lies. He started getting us to doubt God, getting us to turn against God, not trusting him, so that we didn't believe that God wanted what was best for us. We thought God was holding out on us. And so not trusting him, Adam and Eve, our first parents, they rejected God and rebelled against him and tried to take um, life for themselves. And now, brothers and sisters, how does God bring us back to himself? He gave his own son to take our sin and death, to give us righteousness and life, eternal righteousness. And how can this be? How can I receive him? How can you receive him? God simply says, trust me. Believe in me. And you shall be saved. You will be counted with Christ. And so the question we need to ask is, do we believe in Jesus Christ? Do we trust him? Do we rest in him alone, his person and work for our salvation? Uh, At the beginning of the sermon, I told you a story of an unbeliever coming for the first time to faith in Jesus Christ. This past week, I also heard uh, a radically different story, the story of John Wesley. John Wesley had grown up in a Christian family. He had gone to church all his life. He was a a good student, seemingly a great Christian. He, He went to seminary. He became a pastor. After that, John Wesley became a missionary. But one day, John Wesley went to some meeting, and he heard someone reading from Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. 
about how Martin Luther had come to believe that he was right before God, grafted into Christ, righteous forever, eternally. Not because of any of his good works or anything he did, but rather he was spotless and blameless only by true faith in Jesus Christ. And John Wesley said for the first time ever, even though he had heard this message all his life, his heart was strangely warmed. And he felt for the first time he did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for his salvation. And John Wesley wrote in his journal that the Spirit of God chased away the darkness of my unbelief. And when he met with his brothers and friends, he joyfully shared with them that finally, truly, he believed. He believed he was right before God. He believed he was united with Christ now and eternally. So naturally, the question is, do we believe in Jesus Christ? Because it's by true faith we're united to him and can face God without fear and shame once again, never by our works, even if we become a missionary, even if we become a great pastor. And we can notice that there's something really beautiful in the catechism. The catechism does not say to you or me that we're grafted into Christ by a strong faith, does it? It doesn't say we're grafted into Christ by an impressive faith faith, one that would make other people say, wow. It doesn't say we're grafted into Christ only by a heroic faith. Instead, the catechism summarizing scripture says we're grafted into Jesus Christ by true faith. That's wonderful, isn't it? True faith. There's no partial grafting into Christ. Even by weak faith, even by unimpressive faith, by a simple childlike faith, we are united to Christ. And we depend on him alone, now and forever, for our salvation. And there we are secure. So that's the necessity of true faith. And that brings us to our second point, the nature of true faith. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher, he once said uh, that faith, even though it's so fundamental to our faith, uh, that we use the word all the time, it's actually so difficult to define that many definitions make us understand it less. Thankfully, the Catechism gives a really simple and beautiful two-part definition of faith. It tells us faith is a sure knowledge whereby we accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. And at the same time, it's a firm confidence that what God has revealed is true not only for others, but also to me. So faith is, first of all, a sure knowledge. And this might surprise us. Uh, When someone says, oh, have a little faith. What do you usually think of? When someone says, have some faith in yourself, you think it means something like a little bit of hope, uh, a little bit of belief, a little bit of optimism. But here the catechism says true faith starts with information. And we can see the same thing in our passage for today. Paul and Silas tell the Philippian jailer, what do you need to do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But then they don't leave him to figure out, okay, what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ. Instead, we read that they go with him. They go with him to his house and they taught him. They give him information, likely from the scriptures, saying who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what he had done for them. And through their teaching, we read that they, uh, just like what happened with Lydia earlier, by God's grace, had their hearts opened and they believed and trusted in God. As the Catechism says, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. We trust everything, every single word that God says in his word. That is part of true faith. And of course, 
That does not mean that you or I, anyone here, knows absolutely everything God says in the Bible, do we? Do you know everything God says in here? I was hearing uh, a minister talk uh, recently. He was reflecting on five decades of writing sermons, five decades of digging into texts, and he told especially young, new guys like me, he said, you're never going to run out of things to study. You're always going to be learning. You're going to be learning more things about God. He said, you're going to keep on going back to this same book, and you're going to keep on being amazed by our salvation in Jesus Christ. It's inexhaustible. But it means that we have a sure knowledge whereby we accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. It means fundamentally that we're not just trusting God's word. Of course we are, but we're trusting it because it's from God himself. We're trusting God. As Martin Luther notes, it's a great honor, he says, to hold up someone as truthful and trustworthy. Do you have anyone in your life that you hold up as truthful and trustworthy? Someone asks you to vouch for this person and you will say, I don't even know exactly what they're going to say to you. I don't know what they're going to do, but I trust that person. You can trust anything they say. Well, that's what we have in the Bible. We come to know a little bit about Jesus Christ. We're going to be learning for our whole life. And yet we come to know just a little bit and we say we trust everything. We trust every word and we can't wait to, get, to know more. That's where our faith begins with knowledge, a, a sure knowledge. But the Catechism says that our true faith isn't just knowledge. Uh, you can look, for example, back at our text. Uh, the story uh, of that little girl uh, possessed by a demon in our text. The evil spirit within her, if you look at the story, clearly had a sure knowledge of God. We read in the text that this little girl, because of the the demon in her, was crying out for days. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. What's wrong with that message? Absolutely nothing. The demon had it absolutely right. Paul and Silas, they were servants of the Most High God proclaiming the way of salvation, Jesus Christ. We can have knowledge without having faith. True faith, as the Catechism explains it, involves not just a sure knowledge, but at the same time a firm confidence that not only to others but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. And unfortunately, when I was doing an internship once, I found out that this beautiful phrase here, which should give us a lot of assurance, actually shakes a lot of people's faith. I wonder if you've ever had your faith shaken by these words. Because if not properly understood, this can actually sound like a kind of terrifying confession, can't it? Lord's Day 7 says, true faith, true faith that unites us to Christ, that leads to our salvation, is a firm confidence. Brothers and sisters, does your faith always feel like a firm confidence? My faith doesn't always feel like a firm confidence. Suddenly it seems like the gospel's undermined. The people who are suffering the most, people who are the weakest, it seems like their assurance is gone. If your faith doesn't feel firm, is there no good news? Do you not have true faith? What happens when our faith feels weak? The question is, is there good news for people like us whose faith can often feel small and weak? Or is the message of this Lord's Day that if our faith doesn't feel like a firm confidence then we're not grafted into Christ and we're on our own for judgment day and for eternity? 
That question brings us to our third and final point, the object of our faith. What we need to realize, it's very important, is that the firm confidence of our faith is not in our feelings. It's not in us at all. The good news of Christ is not that our firm confidence is rooted in anything inside of you or anything inside of me. Obviously, that wouldn't be good news at all. I love the way, once again, that Charles Spurgeon explains it. Charles Spurgeon says, if you try and find uh, assurance in your own faith, uh, your own feeling of faith, rather, that would be like a ship trying to drop its anchor back onto its own deck. Useless. How is our faith a firm confidence, even when our faith is often pitiful and weak, even when we're not impressed by it, let alone other people impressed by it? Spurgeon says to think of it this way. He once heard that there were two men who were in a boat, and the boat got caught in some rapids, and it was headed toward a waterfall. And someone on shore saw the people in the boat, and so he ran and grabbed something, and he he threw out one end of what he had to them, a a flimsy-looking rope. One of the men, he grabbed onto that flimsy-looking rope. The other man decided instead to grab onto a huge log that was floating by them even faster than they were going. And guess which man, Charles Spurgeon uh, asks, made it safely to shore. We shouldn't be afraid if the cord of our faith looks thick or if it looks thin, if it looks tattered or if it looks strong, because we should look over and see the one who's standing on the shore, the one who's pulling us home. We should see it's Jesus Christ himself who has taken our salvation on himself. If that is the case, who cares how the rope looks? If we trust in Jesus Christ, the one who's on the other side of the rope, then we have a firm confidence, no matter what our faith looks like. That's what makes our confidence firm. Charles Spurgeon, he goes on to say it so beautifully. He says, remember, therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ who saves you. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ that saves you. It is not even faith in Christ that saves you, though faith is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits that save you. Look not so much to your hand uh, with which you're grasping onto Christ. Look to Christ. Don't look to your hope, but look to Jesus, the source of your hope. Don't look to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Brothers and sisters, it's a real shame when you start talking about our faith as though it's something on its own, some object that we can talk about. The beauty of salvation by faith that God has given us is that faith on its own is basically nothing, is it? Faith just simply means to believe in something. It means to trust in something. Our faith isn't a thing existing by itself. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. And so it's a firm confidence, even when our faith itself looks flimsy. Even when our faith itself looks weak. Even when we're like, is it even there? The Catechism summarizes what we believe, what we grab onto by this faith, by saying that it's all that is promised us in the gospel. I wonder if you ever thought of the Bible as just a book full of promises. God's promises of who he is and what he's done and what he will do for his people. One of my friends once shared a beautiful story with me. Uh, There's a time in his life where he was wandering away from the Lord, away from the faith. 
And by God's grace, he was unsettled there. And so he came back. And when he came back, he decided to read the Bible uh, cover to cover. And as he did, he decided that what he was going to do was take a highlighter, and he was going to highlight every single promise that God gave to his people. He said it wasn't long before pages were filled with highlighter marks. The thin pages of his Bible were becoming brittle and heavy because of all the ink highlighting each of the promises God has made to his people in his word. One man claims to have counted every promise that God makes in the Bible. He says, shockingly, there's over 7,400 of them. I didn't double check. I'm taking his word for it. But brothers and sisters, I can tell you for sure, we can say with King Solomon in 1 Kings 8, verse 56, Praise be to the Lord. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. And we can say with the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, that is our yes, our it is true and certain, ascends to God for his glory. And so I'd like to challenge you this week uh, to strengthen your faith, not by looking at your faith, but rather looking at the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. Read God's word and look for promises of a redeemer, not only for others, but also for you and me. And when you read God's promises, like, for example, when you read God is a very present help in trouble, then say yes and amen in Christ. When you read God will hurl his people's sins into the depths of the sea, say yes and amen in Christ. When you read, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, say yes and amen in Christ. When you read, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls, say yes and amen in Christ. When you read, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, say yes and amen in Christ. And finally, when you read that Jesus is returning, and when he does, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. Say yes and amen in Christ. Let's sing together.